This is 50 Feminist States, a road-tripping storytelling podcast visiting all 50 U.S. states to interview feminist activists and artists about their work for gender justice. I'm Amelia Fruby, and this week, we're in Vermont. From the glaciers of Alaska to the dunes of Indiana, I want 50 feminist states. From the waves of New Hampshire to skies of Montana, I want 50 feminist states. And when you hear the cold, you know so well, sisters speak It's Amelia. Thanks so much for tuning back in to season two of the 50 Feminist States podcast. Before we get to today's episode, I want to take a second to encourage you to go follow 50 Feminist States on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. If you're in the Instagram app, or you can just go to instagram.com slash 50 Feminist States. Each week, I use Instagram to share more background on the states we're visiting. I like to post visual representations and graphs and pictures of the facts and figures and history that I mention in these intros and dig even deeper into the topics of the interviews from each episode. It's a great way to keep these conversations going, and sometimes we even do fun giveaways and other sorts of behind-the-scenes previews. So again, that's 50 Feminist States on Instagram at F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. You can follow at Instagram.com slash 50 Feminist States. Now to get to today's episode. So whenever I'm doing research on a state I'm visiting for this project, I'm always interested in what that state has the most or the least of in the country or where it's ranked highest or lowest in the nation. So I do a lot of Googling and looking at census data and reading through random databases of information that ranks things by state. And you heard this a lot in season one, right? So Wyoming has the lowest population in the US. We talked about that in episode two. Minnesota has the most refugees per capita in the U.S. We heard that in episode seven. Even last week in episode nine, we learned that New York City has the largest metropolitan Jewish population, not only in the U.S., but in the world outside of Israel. I like learning these sorts of things that make each state unique, and I think it's a really fun part of this podcast process, at least for me. When I was researching Vermont, two things stood out. Uh, I'll say at the outset, I don't think they're at all related. They just both seemed interesting to me. The first one of those seemed pretty apparent as soon as I drove through Vermont, got to Burlington, and that's that Vermont has the most craft breweries per capita in the U.S. You're probably wondering how many that is. Well, it's 11.5 breweries per capita in Vermont, and they make about 150 pints of beer per drinking age adult in the state annually. That's a lot of beer per person. The second thing that stood out for me when researching Vermont is that according to the CDC, as of 2016, Vermont has the lowest fertility rate in the U.S. That rate is 50.3 births per thousand women ages 15 to 44. That's how they measure it. And it can be compared with the highest rate of 77.7 in South Dakota. Now, there are a lot of op-eds online ruminating about why this may be the case, uh, and most of them like to point out that the birth rate in Vermont hasn't been this low since the Civil War, which was, you know, just over 150 years ago. So these were two of kind of the interesting facts about Vermont that stood out to me, and you're probably wondering how these are of concern to the feminist activists we'll be hearing from today. Well, Emma Merritt is an herbalist working at Rail Yard Apothecary in Burlington, Vermont, and last fall she hosted a series of workshops exploring the role of herbs in alcohol production. 
considering how herbalists were really early bartenders who experimented with tonics like absinthe, gin, and vermouth, many of the popular liquors that we're familiar with today. It turns out that many of these herbalists were also women and non-binary folks. And with Emma, we get to explore the emancipatory power of reconnecting with herbs in our modern world and consider how that's really a feminist act. For this episode, I also spoke with Lucha Green-Bicycle, a PhD candidate at CUNY and mother living in Johnson, Vermont. We talk about her academic work on environmental policy in China and how that shapes her parenting choices, as well as the realities of being a mother right now in the U.S. and in the rapidly climate-changing world, and how to balance those realities with a deep concern for, of course, your children and for the planet. There's a lot of great stuff in this episode. We're even going to get into a little talk about labor and different forms of labor. So let's jump in and hear from Emma first. Emma works at and is a co-owner of Railyard Apothecary, a nonprofit herbal apothecary providing herbal medicine and health education to the community in Burlington. When I arranged to interview Emma at Railyard, my first thought was that that is a weird name for an apothecary because Railyards do not feel herbal or natural at all. Uh, but when I got there, I realized the space was named that because it is literally in a rail yard. When you go to rail yard apothecary, you are in this industrial rail yard warehouse space. But the minute you step inside, you enter this beautifully warm room with high ceilings and natural wood. There's this huge wall of herbs in front of you and there are couches and free tea and an herbal clinic and a yoga studio. So many cozy nooks and crannies. It was everything I could want on a super gray fall day in Burlington when I was there. So now that I've painted that picture for you, let's hear Emma talk about Rail Yard Apothecary and how it got started. This whole space, including the clinic and Rail Yard, started about three or four years ago. And the sort of a windy road that's gotten us to where we are right now. Um, But basically, there was a local bitters company called Urban Moonshine that had rented out this warehouse space to use as their offices and production facility. And then through a certain turn of events, they weren't going to need this whole space for what they thought they were going to need it for. So they decided to turn it into an apothecary and a clinic. And one of my teachers at the Vermont Center for Integrative Herbalism, his name's Guido Maze, was also the head herbalist for Urban Moonshine. And after I graduated, I joined them in opening, it was Guido Maze and Catherine Elmer. I joined them in the beginning of 2016. And we formed this herbal cooperative. It's a like a worker-owned co-op model business. And then a few of us took over the apothecary part as a volunteer project. And so the clinic was moving along and then me and at least half a dozen other people got involved with getting the apothecary up and running. And eventually we turned the apothecary into a separate business, which is a Vermont nonprofit. And it's collectively run and we use a consensus model for decision making and it's been open to the public basically since the summer of 2016 and it's sort of just like an ever-evolving <laughs> creature separate from ourselves <laughs> mm-hmm. like I definitely 
do a lot of work here, but I have, have no sense of ownership over the space whatsoever. Like it's just this entity that has its own life. I'm a big believer in community spaces run by communities for communities, but I know there are also a lot of challenges associated with consensus decision-making and working to meaningfully break down hierarchy in the spaces where we work. So I asked Emma if she could share more about the cooperative aspects of Railyard and the community efforts at the space, which then led us to a conversation about herbalism, social justice, and feminism. It's not always easy. When it comes down to it, the operational structure for both businesses is pretty similar. It's a consensus model. So we, the clinic meets every other week. And then on the off weeks, we have roundtable where we discuss cases, which is another form of collaboration. And then the apothecary meets once a week for a staff meeting. And we talk about what's going on that week or coming up and just make decisions together. And there have been changes to various people who have been involved in those weekly meetings over time. So when we first started, it was like closer to six or seven people. Currently, it's usually three to five of us who are participating in those meetings. And we all know each other so well that we have developed an informal structure for how consensus happens. And it usually involves just talking through the decision and, you know, working it out. But it can be challenging at times. Right now, we're in the process of reevaluating some of those systems and deciding whether we want to have a more formal consensus-based structure for decision-making. Because it it gets messy sometimes, especially when people don't agree. But it's something we believe in. You know, ultimately, we think that it's better than having one person calling the shots. So there's no manager or director. We're all sort of co-directors of the businesses. And we also have an herbal justice fund that encompasses, you know, we sort of invented the term herbal justice that encompasses social justice, but also environmental justice and because it's all connected. So we run Herbalists Without Borders out of this space through, and that ties in with the Herbal Justice Fund. And we do fundraisers to provide scholarships for the BIPOC community for various classes and workshops that we do. Um, Social justice is just so, like, you can't be healthy in a society that's sick. So healing our collective wounds and doing the best we can to dismantle white supremacy is a part of healing our community. So I think that's the foundation of it. Like, we can't be a a healing space if we only serve a particular population. And I think we're still getting there. You know, we are basically a white-run organization. We're striving to be more inclusive. Mm -hmm. And so having um, social justice as part of our mission and racial justice specifically, but also, you know, there's also a feminist component to that as well. And choosing to run the space in a collective way without like a central leadership role um, is important to us. So they all tie in with just, you know, the collective healing aspect of it. And I think there's been a lot of focus on dismantling patriarchal structures within herbalism. For the last like 20 years, you go to an herb conference and 
it's like 90% male teachers who are teaching the classes. And they're the ones who are getting published and writing books. And yet you go to those same classes and 90% of the audience is female identifying people or non-binary people. So it's sort of been the elephant in the room of herbalism in my mind for a while. And all of that is starting to really become central to conversations among herbalists. So I think that that's also that ties in with herbal justice as well is being more conscious of those structures and working to change the way herbalism just to change that structure and be more inclusive, you know, because herbalists were always traditionally women and, you know, across cultures, it's not just white people who practice herbalism. And so the way that we portray ourselves and think about herbalism, I think is changing and we're trying to work to change that. One of the interesting things about this work to dismantle patriarchy in herbalist communities is that throughout history, herbal practices have traditionally been associated with women and non-binary folks. We can think of medicine women and witches and nurses and the long history of mothers as caregivers in the Western world and other spaces. Uh, but like many things, the fame and power of those roles has often belonged to men, even if the work of it belonged to women. Emma is actively working to dismantle that patriarchal hierarchy and herbalism by recovering and uncovering herbal histories. Hear a little more about that now. Just the history of women as herbalists. So that's always been a strong connection for me because, you know, if you look at the, the nature of nature, like the earth and connection to nature is a very feminine embodied thing. Just the ripeness and abundance of the earth, the life-giving nature of plants. And so for me, there's a really beautiful connection there. And there's also the history of persecution of herbalists, um, especially people start thinking about witches. And even the way witches are still portrayed is so messed up. Witches have been portrayed as these really creepy, evil characters. And really, witches are herbalists. They're healers. And, you know, I think that that's the conversation that's been coming up a lot here recently is about reclaiming that term and bringing a more positive understanding to what it means to be a witch. You know, going along the lines of like women being herbalists in communities, and most of my knowledge comes from the history of herbalism in Europe, especially because I've been doing a lot of research recently on the origins of different products that are made for the bar. So there's this really interesting connection between herbalism and bartending. I work with my friend Ian and we teach classes together called Transcendental Inebriation, the magic of herbs and booze. And so we started out just realizing he's a bartender, I'm an herbalist. So we're realizing how many bar products actually contain botanicals. And so we we're like, we should really like pull back the curtain on this and teach classes about it. Like you're drinking a, you know, a martini, you're actually drinking like 50 different herbs between the vermouth and the gin. Um, so the first class we did was on gin. And then we did a class on absinthe and then aromatized wine, like vermouth and other products. And when we did the class on absinthe, we discovered that absinthe was actually like an herbal remedy that was invented by a woman and then the recipe was bought by a doctor and then 
a merchant bought it from him to market as an alcoholic beverage. And so it had this, like, origin from, like, being used as an herbal remedy and then being, like, appropriated by a man to be sold as a commercial product. And then as we started researching all of the different aromatized wines and vermouths, the same story came up again and again, where it was, like, herbal remedies in Europe were just part of the tradition and, you know, it was just, like, a community-based thing where you had, like, healers in your village or your town who made medicine for everybody. And then starting in like the 17 and 1800s with the rise of industrialization and capitalism and imperialism and globalization, all of those remedies just became alcoholic beverages <laughs> sold by men. But it's, it's interesting to think that like the traditional herbal remedies whose recipes were developed by women hundreds of years ago now still have a place in our culture. They're just like hiding in plain sight behind bars. <laughs> Not behind bars. You know what I mean? Behind counters of bars. And before we move to our second interview of this episode, I wanted to make sure that we talk at least a little bit about plants themselves. So if you tuned into this episode for some herbal advice or anecdotes, here's what Emma shared. The first herb that I really got into was lavender. <laughs> and, you know, it's also lavender so well known as an essential oil too. So I think I was just like really drawn to the scent of it and just started wearing tons of lavender all the time. <laughs> like, wow, this is really calming. Well, that's one of the funny things is herbs are kind of hiding in plain sight a lot of times. A lot of them still have a cultural context like lavender. And so we think of it as like some people have negative associations with it. Like that smells like my grandma's bathroom. <laughs> but right, like it's so common that we don't think about that you can make it into a tincture and take it to stimulate your digestion. The reality is that anybody could make that tincture. <laughs> you know, plus you don't have to take herbs as tinctures. Like tea is a much more affordable way to take herbs. I think that's why we value education so highly here, because it's really about empowering people to make connections with nature and with herbs in whatever way they can. And we, we host and teach a lot of medicine making classes here, whether it's like elderberry syrup or fire cider or tincture making or blending teas um, so that people can learn how to do it themselves. Because I think that's really where the lasting benefit comes from is like a hands-on connection. I love this emphasis on the benefits of herbs coming from working with them. I think it so nicely ties together our discussion of collective and cooperative organizing and how dismantling hierarchy, whether it be the hierarchy in your workplace or even the hierarchy between yourself and an herb, is itself a form of dismantling patriarchy or at least a moment of dismantling patriarchy. For our next Vermont conversation, I traveled to a very small town in north central Vermont called Johnson, and I spoke with Lucha Greenvice School there. Lucha is a PhD candidate studying environmental policy in China, and she's written and spoken a lot about U.S.-Chinese relations regarding the state of our planet and its climate. In some ways, I think it's hard to connect those global politics to the rural area of Vermont, where she lives and teaches. Uh, I know it was hard for me to imagine, so I asked what she thought about that, and here's what Lucha had to say. I moved to Vermont with my husband and, at the time, one kid. Um, three years ago, we lived in Brooklyn, 10 years before that. My husband grew up here and I grew up on a farm, so it didn't feel like foreign territory, even though we had never actually stepped foot in Johnson before we moved here. I was finishing my PhD and he was doing his MFA in theater. And our dream was to both teach at the college level 
in some place in New England. And Johnson had job possibilities for both of us. And we just jumped at it. So since since moving here, I've learned a lot about the state and uh, in ways that are familiar in the sense that it fits into a general um, sort of blueprint of a new New England state that has both semi-urban areas like Burlington, but then also a very strong agricultural economy, which is something that I was very familiar with growing up in Western Massachusetts with all the farms in Hadley and in that area. But I also learned that there's some things that are really distinctly Vermont. And then I learned them primarily through my students. So Johnson State College is a slightly more working class school. I realized that a lot of my students are going to enter a world once they graduate in which they are inheriting farms and they already have a career and a life that's sort of planned out for them if they choose to do that, which many of them do, you know, continuing on a family tradition. And so, you know, somebody who teaches about China and climate change, my job became how to make those very distant feeling concepts feel relevant to people who, who who felt that it was, you know, China had nothing to do with their lives. And so that was a great challenge for me because I felt that I could come up with an answer to that, which was that, in fact, the economies, you know, the, of Vermont is very much integrated with the economy of China in the way that um, the farmers in China are growing things like garlic and producing meat and, you know, pork and beef industry and dairy is very much affecting um, prices, sometimes more closely related than others. So, so it was, it was a good challenge for me to be able to think about the globalized world in localized ways, but it also had these really practical impact. And then the other issue, of course, is climate change. These are already people who are incredibly connected with the earth with the seasons. Um, one important industry, of course, is maple syrup. And that is something that is um, part of when you've been doing, when you've been sh- sugaring year after year, you really understand the sort of the nuance of the way that, you know, winter sort of melts into spring and that, that moment when the sap starts flowing. And then when, you know, when you then have gone too far and suddenly the, the trees start budding and it's summer and you can't make sap anymore. And those that's where we see sort of climate change happening, where the sugaring industry in Vermont is, you know, is, is a place where we can very visibly see the impacts of climate change. For me, it's it's been very interesting to kind of have that experience uh, in a rural state and to be able to see how climate change really affects the way people live their lives. And then to try to take that on as my task uh, to sort of make that clear to students or to continue that conversation with students um, so that they can strategize their lives in such a way so that they're prepared for the climate changing I don't often get to talk to someone so well-versed in climate policy, so I asked Lucha about her perspective on climate change, and she shared her thoughts both as an academic and as a mother. You know, I was just looking at the IPCC just recently produced this report that's incredibly terrifying to read and um, basically is more or less about the differences between a 1.5 degree Celsius rise and a 2 degree Celsius rise and what that means in real life. And it's terrifying to read because it predicts that sea level rise and biodiversity, the Arctic ice melting and more violent storms and changes to local agriculture and these things that really can affect our lives and in some cases be even deadly in the case of these really terrifying storms, that those things will happen more frequently and even more than we thought by 2040 is the the date that they're giving and saying that we really have almost no time left. So we need to make changes to reduce emissions by 2040 to avoid this two degree rise. And as a climate policy person, I can see places for optimism in that report, even though it is really scary. But as a mother... I've really changed my feeling. I have a different perspective, which is that climate change is happening. My kids are 
hopefully if all goes well, going to live beyond me and will be in this world without me. And we'll see a lot of the effects that perhaps I'll be spared, although we'll probably see them in our lifetime as well. And so it's more about adapting to a new world and really getting ready for something really different to hit and having my kids be more engaged in ways in which society can come out of these, you know, possibly horrible storms or things like that. And in ways that are egalitarian that, you know, where we don't just have sort of the, the, the wealthy are the ones that are, that remain, you know, that are able to use their own financial resources to um, escape the worst of whatever sort of global chaos may happen. And I'm not like, uh, I, I don't believe in that we're going to have like an apocalypse or something like that. But I do think that we may see things like food shortages. I think that we may certainly see more violent storms that may leave people more homeless. And I think we will see climate refugees. And I think if you're fairly wealthy, your life is probably not going to change all that much because you can sort of buy yourself out of it. But if you're not, you may be vulnerable to this. And I think the, the most vulnerable, the poorest part of the population are the ones who will be affected the most, even though, of course, there's a great irony to that because they're the ones who often have the smallest carbon footprint. One of the best ways to reduce your carbon footprint is actually to be poor. Uh, even the wealthy people who try to do all the right things and bring their own bags to the grocery store often have, you know, their lives produce more carbon. So um, that's, you know, that's sort of my, my focus with my children. And as a mother and feeling that vulnerability really um, on an emotional level of just my own children, you know, I want the planet to be safe for them. And not that I didn't care before, but I didn't care at all in the same way. You know, it's very, it's very different to think about them living beyond me and also their children. And so there's a new level of investment. You know, I just feel, I feel differently invested in the health of the, the planet. And, and I, I feel this more pessimistic, like mama bear reality thing where I'm just like, okay, listen, it's going to happen. Get ready instead of, oh, let's keep you know, telling ourselves that there's things that we can do through policy, just go out and vote and recycle and do all these things. And we can avoid climate change. It's just that's not what's happening. And that's not what any of the reports are saying. Um, it's really how bad there definitely is grounds for optimism. The fact that it, it, there are things that we can do to reduce the severity of it, but it's not going to go away by any means. Now that we've heard a whole lot about the environment, are you looking for practical tips on how to survive and thwart climate change yourself and with your family? Lucha shared thoughts on that too. Well, it's hard to know exactly what skills they would need. And I know that there are some parents who are teaching their kids how to farm and be self-sufficient. And we do a little bit of that, actually. I don't do it with this mindset that maybe there'll be an apocalypse and we could live off of this land. You know, I mean, this is actually a joke. First of all, we run out of water in about two seconds. Um, we would have lots of problems. But I do think that the skills that are associated with living off the land have an, an in another effect, which is that they kind of just teach kids about the planet and how sensitive it is. And so um, my kids, they see the growing season, they see us put the plants in, we have to wait until the last, you know, threat of frost has passed before we can put the tomatoes in. They see the different insects that are coming in and trying to eat our plants and all the, the different biodiversity that we encounter trying to grow. And, you know, they're very young, they're two and five at the time. And one thing also, we have chickens, and we eat the eggs from the chickens. We don't eat meat. We're a vegetarian household. So eggs are a really important source of protein for us. And once in a while we have a predator and it's gruesome, you know, they, so they really are exposed to seeing how life works in that sense that once in a while, actually a fox wants our chicken. We may love our chicken and give it a name, but it's actually going to be this fox's dinner tonight. And so I try to teach them that this is just how life works and that 
part of us can feel sad that we lost our, our little chicken with a cute, you know, they give them all these cute names, which makes it much harder when they die, but that this is part of reality. And I think just having that awareness as a young child about kind of the, the planet being a system and having these, this balance, this ecosystem that has many, many, many different parts and many different variables and different ways of looking at things. You know, the chicken produces eggs for us, but then it also produces protein for um, a fox and, you know, they have a right to live as well. And then also that when the chicken dies, you know, we bury it and it then, you know, bring nutrients to plants that are growing. And so all those different systems, I think it's really good for them to be aware of. In terms of practical skills, we do use only wood heat to, to heat our home and try to sort of be off the grid as much as possible. When we were in New York City, we biked everywhere. Um, it's hard to do that now, but our own lives, we reduce emissions as much as possible. Since I had my first child five years ago, I made kind of a funny little pledge to myself that I wouldn't buy. First, I was like, I'm not going to buy anything. And then I said, okay, I'm not going to buy anything new. And I have more or less stuck to that. Aside from underwear and socks, we have not had to buy any new clothes. I get everything secondhand. And kids really don't need new things. They really, really don't. So those are my little, little ways of trying to reduce things that go into the landfill and, and, and not produce as much emissions because having a kid is definitely a way to increase your carbon emissions. <laughs> so you're creating a whole, a whole life. Throughout both of these conversations, I kept thinking about the relationship we have with the natural world in the United States and how much our labor impacts that. I really appreciated the insights that Emma and Lucha shared about their work with the environment and how that labor takes on cooperative and domestic forms that are really thoughtful and intentional and crafted to be better for the world and the people and plants and animals and air and water in the world. Talking to both of them helped me better see that how we work impacts our lives and our spirits as well as the world around us and we can do more to be intentional in those decisions. Thank you so much for tuning back into the 50 Feminist States podcast for season two. I hope this episode inspires you to go find a plant friend or cook with a special herb while thinking about your carbon footprint today. If you do, you can let me know on Instagram at 50 Feminist States. That's F-I-F-T-Y Feminist States. Next week, we're headed to Maine, where we'll talk about the realities of being a refugee in the U.S. Until then, I'll see you on the road. Cincuenta estados feministas Cincuenta estados feministas Thanks for tuning in to this episode of 50 Feminist States. You can find show notes at 50feministstates.com slash podcast and follow us on Instagram at 50feministstates. Special thanks to Danielle Sines and Jessica Neria for our theme song. Until next time, wild ones, we'll see you on the road.